Good morning. It's good to see you all out there. I'm glad for the opportunity to preach this morning because, one, I just love to preach, but two, I think uh, the subject matter of this series is important. Uh, we're going to be starting today, and it's not going to be like an every Sunday thing because Andrew will be back to preaching, but as I preach over the next few months, we'll be uh, coming back to again and again the issue of the church. So if you got your Bibles, uh, turn to Matthew chapter uh, chapter 18. I paused and hesitated there because honestly we'll, we'll actually dabble in a couple of other texts before we get there, but this is the main text that we'll spend the most time on. And uh, if you don't have a, a bulletin, try to grab one, that might be a good idea, but I've got an outline on the back, and uh, the main highlight there is right in the center of the page is the definition of church that we're going to be dealing with as we unfold this, uh, this series. So it's, it's wordy. It, that's okay. I don't expect you to commit it to memory today. It's, it's, I think every piece there is fairly essential, though, and that's why I wanted it in print before you, and my intention would be as we do this again and again to just continue to put that in the bulletin as a, as a visual reminder for you. <clears throat> So, you might be asking, why this series? Why a series on the church? I mean, we're doing a Sunday school class right now on church membership. We've had the series here recently in between uh, about our mission statement, re-clarifying what our purpose is. Uh, isn't this overkill? I, I personally obviously don't think so, or I wouldn't have launched it, but uh, I've got five brief reasons, and there are more, but these are the kind of the top things that popped out to me is why this series would be important. First of all, because 2020 challenged churches globally uh, to evaluate the importance of the church and the essence of the church. And what I mean there is, one, how important is it that we, that we continue to meet as a church? Can, can't we just do it online? And things like that have been questions that have come up, and, and we'll touch on some of that at some point. Uh, but the essence of the church, that's what it is. What, what is the church? We've, I mean, we think we know, but do we really? It's one of those words that we use all the time, and probably we, we don't really have a good grasp of what that, what that is. So that's one reason. Number two, to help you love what Christ loves. Christ loves the church, people. He died for her. And we need to love what he loves. Our, our love is misplaced if we don't have a love for this thing that he has died to purchase with his own blood. Number three, to connect you to a valuable source of great joy. That probably sounds like wah, wah, wah to some of you all, like Charlie Brown's teacher. Like, seriously, church and great joy? But it, yes, that is the intention of church, as Christ would have it, is that it's a place of, of, that should be able to supply us with great joy. Number four, to combat the idea that, that the church can gather online. And number five, because for most of us, our doctrine of church is deficient. So with God's help, I want to encourage some of us through this series to remain dedicated because I know that there are some folks here that have been faithful and you love the church and you're going to continue to love the church as you've been doing. I want you to keep that high view of church. I want you to, to be dedicated to the importance of church because the times are changing and we're feeling more and more pressure to redefine the church's identity, her mission and her ultimate authority in unbiblical ways. That's what our culture would love for us to do. But don't capitulate to that. Hold the line. Do not give in to culture on the church and redefinition of her authority, her purpose, or her mission, or her identity. But I know that there are others here. Others of us have never seen a healthy church up close. In fact, we've been hurt by unhealthy churches in the past. 
And some have accepted a way of thinking about the church that minimizes her importance. Although that's not our intention, and I know that. But with the help of the Spirit, I want to recalibrate your thinking and set out a more biblically robust picture of the church before you. I want you to see that life in the church is a safe risk. And I put those two words together on purpose. It's a safe risk to, to live life in the church. You have been hurt, and I promise you're going to be hurt again. But Christ is alive and well, and from within the local church, he invites you, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Still others may not fit neatly into either of these categories. You've never really been taught well about the church, and you're not well connected within the life of the church, not because you've been hurt, or injured, but because you don't really see the church as Christ sees her. To you, church is optional. One, line, one online source said this, and yes, this actually came from Facebook. I wish I could give you the person's name, but they didn't have a name associated with it. The quote says this, The church and its worship is not something we arrange around our commitments. It is the commitment around which we arrange other things. End quote. So if we're honest, none of us really sees the, the church as Christ sees the church. But shouldn't we, though? Shouldn't we as Christians, believers, fellow members, and heirs with Christ, children in the household of God, shouldn't we see the church like Jesus sees the church? And since Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant in order that he would care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, how can we maintain a low or deficient view of the church? Do we demonstrate the mind and heart of Christ while being content to remain uneducated or disconnected in matters of the church? That's sort of our challenge here in all of this. So I want to start that sort of introduction. This is more introduction, but getting us closer to the, to the meat and potatoes here. I need to lay out some foundational convictions for you. And their sola scriptura and the sufficiency of scripture. Here at Union Baptist Church, your pastors are committed to sola scriptura. That means scripture alone. So let me flesh that out again real quick. That means that we don't set the agenda for the church. Jesus does. And he's given us what his agenda is on the pages of scripture. And that's what we're going to use. And that's all we're going to use by the help of God. Now we may stumble. We may introduce some foolishness in because we're weak and foolish men. But our ultimate goal is always to lead this church with one set of marching orders, and it's, you all got a copy of it. It's Holy Scripture. That's where we're certain God is speaking, and, and that's what we're going to use. That means we believe, since we're sola scriptura committed here, that means we believe the Bible alone is the rule of our faith and our practice, what we believe and what we do as a church. This means our only source of authority for defining and ordering the church comes from God, and the only certain and infallible place we know God to be speaking today is in the Holy Scriptures. So that's where we turn. Therefore, because of that, we believe Scripture alone is sufficient then to instruct and guide us in everything that God requires of us, including the church's identity, the church's membership, the church's order, the church's polity, its worship, its mission, and anything else church-related that we can think of. So then... When we answer the question, what is the church? We need to be careful that we do that in a way that, that is in keeping with God's word. We must respond as God's word directs us. And listen carefully. It would be just as wrong 
to develop a doctrine of church apart from the Scripture as it would be to develop a doctrine of justification apart from Scripture. And we think, yeah, we don't want to tamper with that justification thing. We, we'll define that just like the Bible says, but why would we define church without the help of the Scripture? We have to be careful there because I think we would err just as badly if we try to make church something that God doesn't intend it to be, just like we would mess up a whole lot of things if we tried to redefine justification. So let's, uh, let's turn to the Word here, and uh, you should be able to start kind of following along there in your, in your bulletin, and we're about a third of the way down, defining church. So some questions here. What is the church? What does church mean, that word or, or that concept? What, what makes a church a church? Is the church the building? Is it uh, gather, any gathering of believers at any location for any purpose? Is, is church somewhere you go? Is, is church something you do? Or is church something that you are? These are all questions, and I'm not going to answer all these today, but these are questions that we kind of hear, kind of thrown around and maybe wrestled with ourselves as we think about church and, and what it is and all that good jazz. But Jonathan Lehman said this, and I think he's right. Your understanding of what the church is will shape your life and your living. It's not an overstatement. He's not making uh, uh, some grandiose, it doesn't change everything, but it is an important thing to state that how we understand church is going to shape our life and it's going to shape the way that we live. Uh, and I think he's right about that. So to proper understand, and I'm going to throw you a big word out there, ecclesiology, if you hear that, that's just the, the fancy uh, theological word for things pertaining to the church, teaching about the church. If we're going to understand e ecclesiology properly, uh, we need to understand some terminology. So let's start with just the word church. This is not a Greek word. It's not in the pages of your New Testament, like it is in our English versions, but when you find that word and you look it up, you don't find, uh, you don't find church or some Greek-looking version of church in there. You find a, a different word, which we'll get in just a minute. Church is not a Greek term or a Greek word, but some say that this goes back to a Scotch or English word, an older word, kirk, K-I-R-K, just like we would name kids sometimes, kirk. And ultimately that, they say, goes back to this, the Greek word kuriakon, meaning the Lord's Day. And so in that vein of thinking of how church came to us, it carries, this term church carries the idea of belonging to the Lord, just like the Lord's day is the, Lord, the, the day that belongs to the Lord. It's, it's Christ's day. It's the day that he should be worshipped on. It's the day that he rose from the dead. It's, it's very significant and important. They would say, well, the church is belonging to the Lord. And, and that certainly isn't false. We know that because uh, the church does belong to Christ. As I pointed out, she was purchased by his own blood. The church is his. There's another theory about how we got this word church. And it, it's basically that it's two Greek words put together, kurios meaning Lord, and oikos meaning house, and so it has the meaning of house of the Lord. Well, that's not wrong either. That's fairly biblical because we know that 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 and 16 call us God's building and God's temple. So those are biblical terms or biblical thoughts, biblical concepts, and, and that's certainly good. But there's the word that is actually used and translated church is a Greek word, and it's ekklesia. And that's the most often translated word for church in the New Testament. Over a hundred times we see that word appear. And so that's the, that's the word that we're going to sort of unpack and kind of deal with uh, as we go through this. 
We need to note that that church has two dimensions. That's still kind of setting the table here. And and there's this universal concept of the church, uh, which I will give you a definition for here in just a second. And then there's the local concept of church. And both are good. Both are right. Uh, But we're going to focus mainly on the local church concept because that's the one that's most applicable to us in so many ways. Uh, That's the one that we have the most input on, if you will. So we're going to focus our attention today on that local dimension of church. But I do want to give you right now uh, a definition of the universal church so you kind of have a category because we may come back to that at some point. So uh, the, the Second London Baptist Confession defines the local church saying this, that it's the full number of the elect who have been, are, or will be gathered into one under Christ her head, end quote. So that's just this starting way back at the beginning, the first saved person to the very last saved person, and everybody in between makes up in concept the universal church. And so then we get into Rome, or not Romans, Hebrews chapter 12, and you've got that we've come not to Mount Zion, but we've come to this holy assembly, this gathering, and you've got the saints in heaven and the saints on earth all pictured there. That's this picture that there are saints in heaven. There's a, an assembly in heaven. It's the church in heaven. And yet you've got the church that's living in, in the writer of Hebrews' day, and they're all really connected to the same larger body, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. Yet there's this expression of those that are still living here, doing the work of Christ now in their lifetime, in their location, with the mission that we've, you know, as we've pointed out here for us, to grow disciples in community to God's glory, you know, those kinds of things. So we've got stuff happening here, but we're not, it's not like, we just cease to exist when we die. No, the church goes to her reward. They're with Christ, with, with their beloved. And so there's some continuity, yet there's lots of discontinuity between the church universal and the church local. So I don't want to get lost in all that, but I do want to focus now on the local church. And what I've got here in this definition in the center of your bulletin is about six, seven different sources kind of pulled together. And this is the definition that I'm going to use and work from moving forward. So I've written here, uh, a local church is a particular and distinct body of baptized believers whose members have been called out of sin and darkness to gather at designated times and in a designated place, keeping covenant with God and each other while enjoying fellowship with Christ. The church's members are cared for by pastors and deacons assembling under the authority of Christ and being governed by Scripture. They observe the, the ordinances and commands of Christ, exercise the gifts, rights, privileges, and responsibilities conferred to them by the Spirit for the building up of the body in love through worship, prayer, and the proclamation of the gospel unto mutual edification and maturity in Christ. That's the definition that we're going to work from. And don't worry, I'm not going to unpack that whole thing today. We're going to work with that first section there. A local church is a particular and distinct body of baptized believers whose members have been called out of sin and darkness. And really, we're just going to hone in on that first part about the localness of the church. So, that brings us to uh, some, some texts here that are not in your bulletin about the local church. This first part of the definition, again, talks about the local church, and I, I just read that back to you. We need to understand that the New Testament speaks of the church about 110 times. And the majority of those times, it's speaking of the local church. 
Sometimes there are several verses that speak about the universal church, but most of the times that you read church in your Bible, it's talking about a local gathering. And it's various local gatherings. It's not just one in particular, it's various ones. And so let's see that real quickly, just a quick survey. So when we, we look, for example, at Paul's greetings in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and you don't have to turn there, but they both start very quickly with these words, to the church of God that is in Corinth. And so you hear that specificity there. There's a particularness to it. It's not every church everywhere. It's to the church and it's the church in Corinth. Notice that it's not even the churches in Corinth in this particular instance. There's a city, Corinth, and there's a church in that city, and, and that's the one he's writing to in both of these letters. Now, it's not that same, th same thing every time, because then when we, we move forward and we look and we see that he writes differently uh, here in a minute to, to Galatia, but we, I want to go next to, uh, to Philippians. Paul says to the Philippians, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. But then as we read through out of chapter 1, we get down into chapter 4, verse 15. He says, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. So we see here that the saints that he referred to uh, at Philippi, the saints in Christ Jesus, he doesn't use the word church there, but he does refer to them as a church later on in chapter 4, verse 15. They're, so they're particular and distinct from the church at Corinth even. I'm writing to you, the saints at the church in Corinth, and now he's writing to the, the saints in Philippi with their pastors and their deacons, and he designates them as a church, so it's a separate church than Corinth. And then he even goes on and he writes to Galatian, to the churches of Galatia, to the churches of Galatia. Now this hints at two things for us. Galatia wasn't a city, Galatia was a region. And it had various cities and towns, and some of these cities and towns had churches in them. And so Paul addresses this particular letter. It was a circular letter. It would have gone from this church to the next church to the next church to the next church. It would have made its rounds, if you will. Uh, and so it wasn't just to one particular body, but to many particular bodies. And so to the churches of Galatia. And so that still helps us see this individual local church concept, though, because it's multiple here, because there are multiple cities and towns with local gatherings, and each of those local gatherings in Paul's mind is a church unto itself. And so there's that local church concept. But number two here, Paul did not write to the church of Galatia as an indistinct entity or a vague nebulous concept. He's not addressing disconnected believers belonging only to a universal church, but Christians who are members of a particular, distinct local gathering. Think about it. How else were they going to hear the letter that Paul had written if they weren't gathered with the believers in a particular location on a particular day of worship? This didn't go from home to home. Just spread this all around so all the pagans and the Christians get to read the Apostle Paul. This was delivered to church houses, or, or church homes, and you didn't know what Paul said if you didn't show up to worship. So it's the local gathered church. It wasn't just out there floating around on the internet somewhere. This was delivered to a church house like this one somewhere, and they would stand up and they would read, here's the letter from Paul, let's see what Paul has to say. And so it gives us again this idea of the local gathering. And then Jesus also, and this gets us to our text in Matthew, Jesus also taught about the local church. And one place that I want to look at is in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. 
So please read along in your copy of God's Word, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. We know this passage because we deal with this passage often when we think about uh, dealing with sin in the church and what's the right steps to take when we've got not just somebody stubs their toe and says some, something unpleasant uh, or we get angry with our wife or our, our husband or our kids without cause, but like somebody's living in a lifestyle of sin and that has to be dealt with. And so this is that go-to passage. How does the church handle that? And we're not going to deal with that aspect of it. But it also points us to some important principles about local church life. So let's read together Jesus here in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three have gathered in my name, there I am among them. So Jesus here uses this, the word ekklesia. That's that other Greek word I was referring to earlier that's often uh, translated as, uh, to mean church in the, in the specific sense here. So it's ekklesia and it's used twice here in verse 17. And here I believe the context requires us to think in terms of a local church. So in the time that remains, I want to draw your attention to five characteristics of the local church and then make some application. Why do I think that this demands that we see this not as the church universal, we just belong to some nebulous group of saved people that we've met or haven't met, you know, uh, all around the world. That isn't untrue, but he's talking about a specific local gathering here, and here's why I think that. Verse 17, local churches enact justice. So there's one of your fill-in-the-blanks there on your bulletin. Local churches enact justice in verse 17. You see there's a matter of sin. There's an issue at, at stake here. There's an offense that's taken place. It's not just somebody burnt my toast. It's, it's, there's a sinful problem in the church. And, and there's conflict. And it's causing a rub. And there's, there's high tension and frustration. And it needs to be handled. It needs to be dealt with. And so Jesus tells us how to do that. How to handle that. And... and I'm not going to focus on all the particulars here, but I do want us to see this concept of justice in verse 17. You've, you've got the offense, you've got the fault of the brother or sister in sin, and you've gone to them and they haven't listened to you, and then Jesus says, okay then, they didn't listen when you went, so here's the next step. If he refuses to listen, uh, actually it's, he hasn't listened to you and he hasn't listened to two or three others, and so we've gone through two steps now of trying to bring somebody out of their, their sinful thinking, their sinful way of life, and bring uh, restoration. Let me point this out by way of uh, just a, uh, to, to help you see this. Let's go back to verse 15 for a second. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That last word is really important because this helps us see the discreetness that Jesus wants us to deal with issues of sin. This isn't a public humiliation campaign. This isn't a slander uh, tour. 
This isn't uh, something that we do flippantly or that we treat uh, as public knowledge. We keep it as small as we can keep it because love covers a multitude of sins. That verse does not mean that love doesn't confront sin. It means that love covers the sin from everybody else's gaping view. We don't want everybody else gawking at their sin if we can keep it private. It does not mean that if you know about it, you just become complicit by keeping your mouth shut. What, stays in, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Baloney. What happens in Vegas is before the eyes of God who will judge you for everything that happens in Vegas. That's the way that quote should go. So we don't, <laughs> we don't look at this and say that, that we don't deal with sin. We deal discreetly with sin. Okay, and so that's important because now this, this idea of justice, we're, we're going to get down into verse 17, he's refused you, he's refused other brothers and sisters in the church, and Jesus says then, as we continue to face that sin as discreetly as possible, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The, the thrust of those last statements there is not that we, we treat them disgustingly, that we kick them out, you know, we don't like you anymore, uh, you're, you're, I'm dead to you, you're dead to me kind of a thing. No, we do remove them from membership of the church, and that takes a vote of the church to do. They haven't, through this process, listened to a, a brother or sister as they bring the sin before them. Nope, I, I'm really carrying repentance. They don't listen when two or three others come to sort of adjudicate the matter even further, and now the issue's been brought up to the church, and Jesus says if, the, if they won't hear the pleas of the church to repent and, and become right with each other and right with God again, then justice demands that you remove their membership. That's, again, not this big public campaign to smear them at work or on Facebook or Twitter or some other social media platform, but it does mean that you don't need unregenerate people trying to vote in matters of the church, and you don't need them heaping up condemnation on themselves, taking the Lord's table whenever they're not fit to do so. There are things at risk for their soul, and the loving thing to do is to quit treating them as if everything's okay between them and God. And the removal of their membership is to help them understand, wait a minute, you're really serious about this. Yes, brother, we are. We've come to you two or three times now, and you haven't repented, and we're willing now to take action so that you understand that everybody in the church with voting privileges thinks that you're in sin. Everybody in the church with voting privileges is begging you to repent and get right with God for the sake of your own soul. So this is a matter of justice. Justice is doing the right thing whenever there's been an offense. We, we got some, perhaps some overblown ideas of what justice is in our culture. It's a hot topic to talk about. But at a basic level, justice is, is doing what's right for people's souls. Helping them to lift the weight and burden of sin off their lives and to be right between God and right between others. Because this sin is bringing distraction into the body of church. It's bringing dissension. It's bringing all kinds of conflict. We've all probably been in churches that have split. I've, I've been in churches that don't even exist anymore because sin happened and churches imploded. They fell apart. And this process helps bring justice so that churches don't have to cease to exist. And so the local church enacts justice. Jesus here places a significant responsibility on the local church pertaining to justice. Local assemblies must be spiritually mature enough to faithfully carry out God's will in dealing with individual members' sins. And that's that part there. We deal with that. Ultimately, we go, we confront sin discreetly. 
And if, we don't, if we're not heard, we go back with others who are discreet. And if we're not heard, we bring it before the church as discreetly as possible to keep it out of public eye. And not to say that we hide sins in the church either. I'm not talking about cases of abuse and things like that that need criminal charges and criminal investigation. I'm talking about offenses between brothers and sisters. But ultimately the church comes to this point of adjudicating justice if it is not heard, if, if they are not brought to repentance and they have to take action. And Jesus says to the church then, enact justice this way, treat them as an unsaved individual. Now what would we do to an unsaved individual? We wouldn't let them vote or hold offices in the church, but we would evangelize them. We would, we would care for their souls. Same thing we do to lots of un, unsaved individuals every Sunday morning in Sunday school because most of our kids aren't professed believers. We're not mean to them. We try to love them to Jesus. But we just change our tactic with this brother or sister because we realize now that they're not responding to the gospel properly. And so we're going to go back to square one. We're going we're to assume that they don't have saving faith. We're going to love them to the Lord is what we're going to do. That's going to be our goal. That's, that's carrying out enacting justice. We're, we're, we're acting to protect the church and its members, which is just. We're acting to, to help them see the severity of their sin, which is just. And then we're going to try to win them to Jesus, which is also just. It's a good thing to do. So failure to respond biblically and wisely to someone's sin would be a miscarriage of justice. We see a parallel to this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1-4, through 4, and I'll just read that and not make a lot of comment here. But Paul also expects the church to be a place that can, act, can enact justice. Not the church universal, because Jesus didn't say, when your brother sins, take it to all these people in other cities that you've never been to, that speak languages that you haven't learned how to speak yet, and don't know you or this matter, and, and ask, them to, ask this brother to repent. That's, if it was the universal church, we would have to do that. We would have to pack our bags and just make a world tour, knocking on doors. Are you a Christian? Well, then help us with this matter. Are you a Christian? Can you help us with this matter? We'd have to get all the way around the world if it was a universal church, but that's not what Jesus told us to do. It's the local church. And, and again, Paul has a parallel here in 1 Corinthians 6, 1-4. through 4. When one of you has a grievance against another, he writes, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Paul sees the local church as a place to enact justice. But in addition to this responsibility for the local church to enact justice, the local churches have authority. That's your second fill in the blank. Verses 18 and 19. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. The church has authority from Christ to consider an unrepentant person as if they're not saved. I know that sounds harsh to a lot of us. That, that falls on some sensible ears, and, and that's just difficult for us to imagine, but it's in the text. That's, that's come, this is Jesus that's speaking here. Uh, if he refuses, verse 17, tell it to the church, treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector, and then he immediately continues, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, this is dealing with their membership status. 
This is Jesus. This is what love looks like. I had an issue. I'll tell you a quick story. Way back in the past, uh, I mean, goodness, we're talking 17 years ago, I was a member of another church, and there was a young lady in the church that was doing some pretty egregious sin, and it was known among a lot of people. It just wasn't being handled, and me and Lindsay went to the pastor. It happened to be his daughter. Tried to be gentle, and I, I, I feel like we were, and said, hey, look, brother, this is an issue. It involved a deacon's son, and uh, it was becoming pretty popular, or not popular, but uh, widely known in the church, and uh, we kind of sat down, and long story short, we talked through that we need to address this issue with this particular young lady. And I understand that it's your daughter, and that makes things difficult, but this is bringing, this is wreaking havoc in the church. And he basically, and we tried to appeal to this text, and he basically said, you know, that, that this wouldn't be loving to do. And I, I looked him straight in the face, and I said, so are you more loving than Jesus? Because Jesus is the one that commands this course of action. You can't argue with Jesus, guys. I mean, you can try, but it's foolhardy. This is what, and since Jesus is God and God is love, I'm, I'm skipping a few things here, kind of putting some stuff together. Jesus doesn't act in a way that's unloving. Church discipline, walking this out, isn't the lack of love, it's the presence of love. It's what love looks like in a local congregation. It needs to be believed, it needs to be practiced, uh, obviously with wisdom. But because it has to be practiced, Christ also confers the authority to make sure that it happens. And that's what happens. He says, he tells us what to do in verse 17. He gives us the authority to do it in verses 18 and 19. The church again has authority from Christ to consider an unrepentant person as though they're not saved after the church has faithfully completed a process of seeking correction and restoration to no avail. Those last things are, are important as well. It's not just that we give it a half-hearted effort. We don't really care what the outcome is and Wash my hands, I'm done with you. Now, all those words are important. We can do this after we faithfully completed a process of seeking correction and restoration. That's the goal, not humiliation. We want to restore them, but it hasn't worked. They haven't repented. Then we take the action, the unsavory action. But we act in love to protect the fellowship and to help them stop thinking that they're right with Christ when they're not. That's what love does. That's, what love, that's how love acts. Love doesn't enter into people's delusions and reassure them that they're everything they say they are, even though there's no evidence of it. Love says, nope, here's truth, and this is what you should believe. And I can't tell you something different because I'm not authorized by the head of the church to do so. Christ himself doesn't give me that freedom. So local churches have authority then to bind and loose things in the physical or relational realm if they've been bound or loosed by God. Look again at those verses. Verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Actually, it shall have been bound in heaven. Maybe a better translation there. So we're, we're reflecting on earth in our local assembly something that God is already making actions toward in heaven itself. In the spiritual realm, the unseen realm, God's already seen this individual. He's already treated them in this way, in a sense. He hasn't, he hasn't welcomed them into membership in his true family because he's always known the condition of their heart. And he's saying, now you're beginning to see through this process of church discipline and this egregious sin, the reality that God's known the whole time. So you're going to take action down here that mirrors what, what's happened already in heaven, so to speak. You're going you're gonna to put them in that position. You're going to show them to be what, what uh, the evidence points to. But the church cannot lawfully exceed the boundaries set forth in Scripture. The exercise of the church's authority must represent on earth 
what God is doing in heaven. And I think that's important. He doesn't say just come to your own conclusions. This is a process of much prayer, much investigation, much conversation. And at the end of it, if it looks like this person is an unbeliever, we take that unsavory step and we've got the authority by Christ to do so. Uh, But we're only trying to do in, in the physical realm what we understand and believe is true of the spiritual realm. Put them in the right category and treat them as is fitting for that category. That brings us then to point three, local churches facilitate fellowship. Let's get a little happier here. Lighten things just a bit. Local churches facilitate fellowship, and we see that in verses 19 and 20. Jesus says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So fellowship is assumed throughout this text. It's assumed because you have a company of people, a gathering, an assembly of people doing life together when this issue of sin disrupts uh, that fellowship. You've got people doing life and something happens and there's that friction, there's that sinful moment that disrupts all that, that, that disturbs all that. So in verses 19 and 20, we have the church agreeing together in prayer as well as gathering in Christ's name. So not only were they uh, uh, together in fellowship prior to the sin, doing what churches do, reading the word together, praying together, hearing the word preached, serving people's needs, you know, fulfilling the one another's, if you will, of the New Testament, those kinds of things. But now you see them gathered together uh, in fellowship, uh, in, partly in this church discipline issue, but we see them gathered together in these verses in prayer. If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered in my name there I am among them it's fellowship this points us to the the closeness the 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 unity the fellowship the brotherhood of the people of God but I'm getting ahead of myself to the next point here it's a strained interpretation that could read Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 20 and not see fellowship held among church members. You'd have to rip it out of its entire context or just not log the fact that this is in a local church setting. This isn't just two guys at work somewhere, two gals you know, at some park bench you know, with their kids playing at the park that just happen to be Christians. This is within the context of people that sit in pews next to each other, if you will, and something has disrupted that, that fellowship and that unity, and this is how we restore the peace, the fellowship, the joy of church membership together. But that also, another thing that we see here pointed to, and it's our fourth point, is that local churches are families. And that takes us back to verse 15, actually. So back up to the very top of what we've been looking at. Verse 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Very straightforwardly, notice that Jesus calls this individual a brother. It's an intentional use of the word. I mean, think about it. Jesus, what's the chances of Jesus just, well, I, I just, just unintentionally used that word. I, it has no significance or meaning. It's just the one that popped into my head at the moment. And Matthew just happened to be moved by the Holy Spirit to write that unintentional word down. No, let's think about it. Jesus said the word. He meant to say the word. He's the Son of God. He he makes no mistakes. And then the Holy Spirit, who helped Matthew write this without error, picks the same word to use. It's brother. It's significant. 
It's important. It's meaningful. It's freighted with significance. It's to tell us that churches are families. And I'm going to swim against current just a little bit here. Our relationships in the church are every bit as important and in some cases more important and more lasting than our blood relationships. And I know some of you all don't like that. I don't particularly like it either. It's the facts, though. Some of my family will probably be in hell. Some of yours will too. That's a fact. Some of these people that are sitting in these pews you're going to spend eternity with in heaven. And that's a fact. We have to reckon with that. And then Jesus sets us in terms. He says, we are family. When he's dying on the cross and he looks at John and Mary, he says to her, behold your son, and to him, behold your mother. They're, pl- they're placed closer than blood relationship. We're just as close as blood relationship. And it doesn't mean that we despise blood ties. It means that ultimately when we have to pick or choose, we have allegiance to the family of faith above everything else. And that doesn't mean that we become some Camp Davidian cult either. It just means that as Jesus sees it, we're spending eternity with, with other believers, not with just blood relationship. And that is, that is sorrowful to some degree, but it's, it's true. And there's something to rejoice about in that. And if that worries you, then I would, I would just application real quick right here then wear your knees out praying for your, your blood relationship. That's why prayer is important, and that's why we evangelize our kids. That's why we step in there and we plead with them to have faith in Christ. That's why we take the gospel to mom and dad or to aunt and uncle or brother and sister out there, so-and-so, because there is an eternity that's coming. But the point here is, and let me get back to it, is that local churches are families. God intentionally places us in a tight bond that he expects us to take seriously, And the blood tie that we have is a metaphor that points us to the deeper reality of spending eternity with brothers and sisters in Christ. We look at husband and wife, two two families that weren't blood related. And it says that God joins them together and let no one separate. And in a sense, there's a way that that's happening when God brings people into the family of God. You're never kicked out of that family. He means to bring faithful members together in a forever family. It doesn't get torn apart, not in an ultimate sense. It is binding. It is important. It needs to be viewed that way. We need to stop de-emphasizing the family nature of the local church and understand that this matters. This is deeply important. And so we look to the love we have for mom and dad and brother and sister, and we hold on to that. But we say, look what Christ has died to give me. Something more sure than that. Something of deeper significance than that. Because moms and dads fail kids all the time. Brothers and sisters squabble and fight and write each other off and live life apart from each other with no care to the other person all the time, but not so in the family of God. It's not fitting, it's not right, not even in the natural, but far more is it fitting for the church of Christ. The family of God, people that Jesus died to make brothers and sisters. How dare we de-emphasize that significance? We cannot, we must not. The idea of family is underscored throughout the entire New Testament. 
You can't read your Bibles without being hit time and time again with the significance that God places on church family. Consider the following. We're told to love one another with brotherly affection. Notice how he's wanting you to take from what you do know and apply it to something that you're not as familiar with, but understand the significance then to your connection between people sitting in these pews, members of the household of God. This is not insignificant. How do we love them? With brotherly affection. We're called to be members of the household of God. Well, all the people that live in my household are family. That's the way that works. So again, another family idea. We're called children of God. And then Timothy just knocks it out of the park. He slaps it all together in one fell swoop. He drives the point home saying, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. I mean, notice that over and over and over the New Testament writers understand the family significance of the local gathering of the church. We, we don't. We say that, brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, but it's, it's almost meaningless, empty words for a lot of us anymore. It's just, it's just what we've learned to say. I would challenge us, saints of God, look around and look differently at the people in this building. These are not expendable people. These are not expendable relationships. Church is not an expendable concept. Jesus uses the, the, most, the most basic, emotional, heart-tugging terminology all throughout the Scripture to try to drive home to you and to me the significance of the people sitting in this room. And we undervalue it. We shouldn't. They're not wasted words. This quote comes from John Scott, not to be confused with John Stott. And John Scott once said, The Christian life is not just our own private affair. We have been born again into God's family. Not only has he become our father, but every other Christian believer in the world, whatever his nation or denomination, has become our brother or sister in Christ. But it's no good supposing that membership of the universal church of Christ is enough. We must belong to some local branch of it. Every Christian's place is in a local church, sharing in its worship, its fellowship, and its witness, end quote. That brings me to my fifth point here. Local churches have purpose. We see that all throughout this entire passage. As the above quote reminds us, we have a purpose as members of this local church, among which we worship, that would be a purpose, we fellowship, another purpose, and we witness. So there's three purposes of the church right there, and there are more than I'm going to share in this. But another purpose, as we see it in verses 15 through 20, is to restore sinful brothers and sisters to a right relationship with Christ inasmuch as we have the ability to do that. You ultimately don't make believers or unbelievers. But we do have a responsibility. It's part of how we function as a church to restore, to bring peace, to cover sin, to confront sin, to love people well enough to not let them go to hell without trying to stop them. So what's implied is not simply that you, the individual, so let's, let me go back to verse 15 here real quick to give you some context. 
Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. There's a purpose statement. That's what the going to the brother is all about. And what's implied is not simply that you, the individual, has gained their brother, but that in a real sense, the local church gains back their brother. And this can be inferred from the way that the local church participates in the process of trying to win this brother or this sister. Because we, again, we come down and it says, if he refuses to listen to them, that is the local church. So we see here that the church at some level is also trying to gain back, to restore, to save, to, to halt this, this decline, this, this departure away from. They're trying to, to bring this person back. That's a purpose that the whole church is caught up in. To gain their brother. When we summarize all that we've learned in these verses alone, we see that the local church has a purpose directed by Christ. Members have responsibilities and privileges to be carried out for His glory. And we'll unpack more of that later as I get it back up here more and more and we, we go through this definition of what a church is. We'll dive deeper into those matters then. So let me close with some exhortation. Considering what we've looked at and learned today, I want to call you to examine your heart toward this local church. This one right here, Union Baptist Church. And if you're a visitor here today, I'm not really speaking to you because you're not, you're not in membership and it falls on visitors differently than it would fall on covenanted members of this church. But I want to, I want to call the members or those, those considering membership here to examine your heart toward this local church. If this is where God has placed you or you feel like this is where God might be placing you, then we need to start thinking more in terms of this and not just this is one of many options for, for my Christianity. And there's a sense in which that's true, but primarily this is where God intends to feed you and grow you. And this is primarily where your responsibilities lie as a member of this church. So you've got to then, you've got to bring your mind in and start focusing it here perhaps a little bit more. For some of you, again, like I started with, keep doing what you're doing. Some of you all are fully committed. Some of you all get it. Church membership is important. You love this body. You would die for this body. Keep it up. Continue to love and pray for this church and to serve this church in all those ways. We need you and we praise God for you. But I want to ask some others here. Are you thinking biblically about the church? Do you think biblically about membership? It's important. So if you're not thinking biblically about it, if this has challenged you in some way, and I know that there's so much more that could be said, but I don't have endless hours to preach. Repent. That means change your mind, first and foremost. Change your mind about the church. And then embrace the teaching that's there. Embrace what Jesus is exhorting us to do. Embrace this new idea and, and reevaluate the importance of church in your life. You're not just called to attendance. You're called to membership in a church. So perhaps you need to repent. Perhaps you need to embrace the truth. Are you committed to living out the realities that I've been preaching about? Maybe you get it, and in your mind you, you identify with these categories, and you, you even assign a certain level of importance to church, and it's like you're halfway there, but you're not really committed to it. It's like if you were polled, if, if Barna called you, you'd give them the right answer for the poll. Church membership is really important. But do you live like it is? 
Do we, do we truly live as if church membership is important? If you're a believer in Christ and not providentially hindered, you're responsible to God to live in fellowship within a local church. Perhaps you've been gripped with the reality that your membership is not based on a true saving faith in Christ. Or maybe you're not a member here or anywhere else because you've never submitted to the authority of Christ. Either way, I want to invite you to repent today, to turn to Christ, to come into His family, to value what He values, to become a member of what He Himself is a member of. Think about that. Jesus is, is, a, is a member of a church. He's the head of the whole church. And if He were walking on earth today, He would have a church home that He would, that he would be a part of. And finally, Greg Lowry has said this, just as you must eat and drink and breathe to live, you must read the Bible, pray, and be involved in a local church to stay spiritually alive and vital. You will never outgrow these things. Will you pray with me? Father, as we come to you at the end of this sermon, God, I thank you for the Word. I thank you that the Word does the work and it's not up to me as an individual. I don't have to manufacture change in people's hearts. You've simply given me the easiest task of preaching the Word. But I do pray now, God, as I've been praying in, in weeks preparing for this, thinking about the need we have to see the church differently, and not just to see it differently, but to embrace that difference and to savor that difference, to love and enjoy and enter into all things that you have commanded of us concerning uh, membership and its responsibilities and privileges and all those things. And so I'm asking God for the grace and help of your spirit to properly value the church. God, I could say honestly, even at the end of this sermon, that I still don't think I properly value the church, that I don't see her with all the love and commitment that Christ does. So I need to grow. I'm deficient in my love of this church. Lord, I also pray that you would help each of us to love what you love. You died for the church. And in some sense, you died for Union Baptist Church. For none of us would be here to be brought together into this local congregation were it not for the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And we dare not take that lightly. So God, help us to look around this room at each other and to love each other with the measure of love, the kind of love, the quality of love, the commitment of love that you, O oh Christ, love this church with. Help us, God, through Union Baptist Church, but more importantly, through the Spirit living and functioning and moving in the membership of Union Baptist Church, help us to connect to deep joy as members of this church. God, to value uh, the in-person gathering of the church. And I pray also, God, that you would help us to recover the doctrine of church that we have lost altogether or, or nearly lost in our culture, God. This is just the beginning, scratching the surface, but there's so much more that we need to see about church. And I pray that you would help us, God, to get there over the coming weeks and months for your glory, O Christ, and for the good, the benefit, the soul satisfaction of your people. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.